Welcome to Life Centered, the podcast about how looking to the natural world is impacting technology, society, and how we live our lives. I'm Tim McGee, and in this episode, Amelia, Tracy, and I talk with Scott Sampson. Scott is best known as Dr. Scott from the popular television show Dinosaur Train, where he served as science advisor and on-air host. In real life, Dr. Sampson, or Scott as we called him, is a dinosaur paleontologist, science communicator, and passionate advocate for connecting people with nature. We were able to catch up with Scott in Vancouver, BC, where he is president and CEO of Science World British Columbia. In this conversation, we dug into his insights around how we can create a thriving world as an embedded part of nature. We touch on the subtle but important difference between biophilia and topophilia, the integration of high-tech and deep-tech, and the nuances of mentoring versus teaching. We also discuss his new book, How to Raise a Wild Child, and along the way, get to learn where Scott would spend one hour if he could travel through time, train or no train. Enjoy. One of the things that I found really engaging or surprising in the book, How to Raise a Wild Child, The Art of Science and Falling in Love with Nature, was the idea of topophilia. Mm-hmm. And and I loved your hypothesis around it and sort of the subtlety of the difference between biophilia and topophilia. And would you mind describing that? Sure. Um Biophilia is an idea that is really caught on. E.O. Wilson was one of the primary proponents, although by no means the only one. And the idea is that we have a built-in bias towards nature that um, goes right down to our genes and that we are biased to affiliate with nature, that it is it is key to who we are. And now you have, you know, the whole biophilia movement and um, biophilic cities and all kinds of things have come from that. And um, the the tweak that I made on this was to use a word that, once again, had been used before. I did not invent the word. The notion is topophilia, uh, which instead of being a love of life, which is biophilia, is love of place. And my argument is that we are not genetically biased towards life in general. Rather, we are biased towards the places that we grow up. And I went back, I have a couple of degrees in anthropology, and I went back and used anthropological evidence as a means to help back this up, that effectively humans are the most adaptable species out there that any of us could be born anywhere in the world and learn to speak that language and adapt to that culture, etc. And it is, it is the thing that makes us human more than anything else. It is why we have been able to spread out all over the entire planet, whereas most species live in very defined little areas or niches. And the notion is... We, are, we have been successful because we have this ability to not just learn to live in a place, but to fall in love with it. That we have to understand the world around us, particularly for most of human history, living as hunter-gatherers. It was essential that we care about the place that we live, that we understand it, that we have an appropriate fear for it at times, but we, we know the nuances of that place. And my... My argument in this paper is that we still maintain that within our genome, within our genetic background, that we maintain this bias to fall in love with nature 
but we're superseding this bias by effectively effectively alienating ourselves from the natural world. And one of the things I like about that is the the implications that that brings to when you're trying to apply, for example, there's lots of biophilic cities, biophilic architecture, but if it's less about just life and more about our connection to place, then that really changes how you start to apply these ideas. Yeah, I think we need to start thinking more place-based in how we do stuff. And right now there's this bias towards the global, that we need to become global citizens. And um, we're homogenizing the places we live rather than celebrating their uniqueness and diversity. And the argument is that we need to be doing this from birth, that we need kids to understand the places they live and, and really care about them. And without that, arguably sustainability in any kind of meaningful ecological sense could be impossible. Um, so the, there's sort of one question that really drives me today more than anything, and that question is, how do we create thriving places that are high-tech and nature-rich? So we're not going to go back to a world, a back-to-nature mentality where we're giving up on technology. Our lives are going to be coming become increasingly technological. And as a result of that, as Rich Louv likes to say, the more high-tech our, our lives become, the more nature we need. So how do, re, how do we rewild cities and rewild our minds in the process so that we give a damn about the world around us and make good decisions that help that place to thrive? So. That's the question that really sort of motive, is at the center of my being that really helps uh, inform the decisions that I make on a daily basis and even the things I do with my career. One of the questions we often ask people is, um, when do you feel most connected to the world? What is your place? <laughs> yeah, for me, um, it hasn't changed since I was a kid. I, um, I feel most connected when I am by myself in a wild or semi-wild place could be in a city but it still has that sense of wildness about it and i'm able to be quiet and think and open up my senses and just be in that place and that is when i feel most connected and i go out of my way to create those experiences and if i don't do that i find i start to sort of lose hold of my life pretty quickly and so I've learned that this is this is critical for me just to stay grounded or rooted. So what does that look like for you? Yeah, I mean, I've chosen to live places where nature can be easily accessible. Um, I live now um, just outside in a place called West Vancouver on the north shore of Vancouver, where within 10 minutes I can be in an old growth rainforest. Um, and mm. so for me, having those experiences close by is critical to my being um, and you know I think that I work in the middle of a of a city and I know most of us do and so much of the thought that I put into this involves how do we create these kinds of experiences in the city because not everybody most people aren't going to be able to get access to an old growth rainforest to go and have these experiences so how do we create these kinds of experiences in urban settings and I think there are ways of doing that and um, uh, I think that the cities of the future will be rich in nature and allow for these experiences. 
what you just said completely dovetails into what gets me out of bed in the morning, which is basically to look at how to synthesize what's going on on a global level um, in terms of understanding that the majority of the human race is migrant or will move towards a migrant lifestyle because of you know, various types of insecurities and climate disturbances. And so how do we envision and architect and um, create awareness about a future that holds both of those things that you were talking about in terms of allowing us to evolve our technological interconnected, you know, way of life that seems to be really sexy and attractive to a lot of people who want to drive economies um, and also integrate um, these really important and highly intelligent natural settings into our lives. Like, what does that visioning look like for you? Yeah, I mean, that is a terrific question. In this world where people are transitory, how do we un- allow them to connect with local place? Um, and I'm probably a great example of that. I was born and raised in Vancouver, and I returned back here nine months ago, but I've been away for almost three decades. And in that time, I've lived in Toronto, and then in Ontario, in New York, in Utah, in California, in Colorado. And so I am as displaced so to speak, as um, the bulk of people out there. And yet, wherever I go, I try and dig in somewhere. Um, and I think this is, this is a new phase for humanity. For, you know, we've, as humans, we've been around for arguably 200,000 years. And for 95% of that time, maybe even closer to 99, the bulk of us lived within a few miles um, lived and died within a few miles of where we were born. And so this whole transitory thing where we're all over the place is new for us, and we have to figure out how that works. And to my mind, part of the answer is creating these high-tech nature-rich places wherever we go so that it doesn't matter where you move to, you will have opportunities to dig in and do this. And, you know, in essence, I have to say that I... I look at sustainability, and by the way, I hate the word sustainability. Um, you know, it's like, as, as somebody once said, who would ever want a sustainable marriage? You know, I just want us to be, I want us to be sustainable, honey. You know, like, I just want us to keep things exactly as they are. They don't need to change. I mean, that just sounds so incredibly boring. Oh, I and, know. And what we want really is thrivability. We want to create thriving worlds. So I actually use that word and there's, I'm once again, not alone in doing that. There's a growing number of people doing that. So how do we create a thriving world? And, and I would argue that our greatest challenge is not technological. It's not about solving energy problems or efficiency problems or waste problems that yes that's all wrapped up in it but we have most of the technology we need to become sustainable right this very moment and the rest of it is on the horizon the challenge isn't technology it's mental it's a mind shift that we need and i would argue the mind shift um, and once again there's many other people David Orr, David Suzuki, um, there's many folks who have said that right now we see the world in an anthropocentric way. We see ourselves as outside and above nature and in control of it. 
we see nature not as relatives, but as resources. Mm-hmm. And the mind shift that has to happen is that we learn to see ourselves embedded within nature and collaborating with nature to build thriving places, that we respect the wisdom that's embedded in nature and we work with it, alongside it. And this is a huge mind shift on the one hand. On the other hand, it represents the worldview that indigenous peoples have all over the planet. And you have to be careful anytime you generalize about indigenous peoples. But just to give an example, it's been said, and I haven't checked this by any stretch, but it's been said that um, in North America, indigenous cultures, the native Indian cultures, the First Nations in Canada, etc., that there is no word for nature that's separate from humans, because there's no point in having such a word, because humans are embedded in the natural world, that this is a construct that we have created. And, and so for most of human history, we've seen ourselves as deeply embedded in the natural world. It is the norm as a worldview. It's just something that we don't have now. And so the challenge that we have is how do you shift a worldview? Like how do you take the bulk of people in the developed world and, and shift what they do. And I think a lot of that will come down to education. And the interesting thing is science backs up the biocentric worldview, the worldview that says we're embedded in nature, 100%. And most people have no clue of this. It, it backs it up ecologically. It backs it up evolutionarily that we have evolved from single-celled organisms and, you know, amphibious organisms and ultimately reptile-type organisms and then mammals. And, and the chances of that not being true are about the same chances that gravity doesn't really exist. I mean, we know that that is the case. Ecologically, we see ourselves as deeply isolated from the rest of the world as, as in single independent beings that... My name is Scott Sampson. I am a single organism. And that actually is a fiction that Mm -hmm. only in the past 15 years have we shown that, in fact, each one of us is not a single life form, that there are about 100 trillion cells in the average human body. Excuse me. And 90 trillion of those cells are not human. They are bacterial cells. They are fungal cells that in essence, we are only 10% human, that we have more living things on us and in us than there are people on Earth, (laughs) than there are stars in the Milky Way galaxy. So in a sense, then, we are bipedal colonies. and, And it's because we evolved in conjunction with all of these microbes, and we absolutely depend on them. And of course, Hearing this or learning this, you might go, wow, I want to go have a long shower and get all these things off me. (laughs) But in fact, we need them. They're critical to our immune system and just a general function and keeping out invaders, all these things. They're essential to who we are. Um, And so we need to, you know, we are flow through organisms, whether it's air or water or food. We are taking in organic material and putting it out the other end. And we are deeply embedded in the natural world. We just don't see it that way. So the science backs it up, the long tenure of thinking on this planet, the world views back it up. It's just not the way most of us in the developed world think. And I think the answer will come down at least in part to education. One of the things that I 
really appreciated. And I, I don't think I put my finger on it over the last 10 years where I've been out guiding people in the woods, um, showing them biomimicry ideas and engaging um, the difference between teaching and mentoring. I tell a very short story in How to Raise a Wild Child about taking my daughter out when she was around eight, nine years old. And we went on a, a short hike and um, we came around a corner and we saw a great blue heron. And um, I said to her, you know, hey, Jade, what do you think that is? And my gut, because I'm a biologist, was to say, Jade, look at that great blue heron. Its formal name is blah, 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 blah. I mean, I, it's like my favorite bird on the planet. But on this day, I stopped myself and I said, what do you think it is? And she said, well, Daddy, it looks like a heron, but I'm not really sure. And I said, well, why don't we just sit down and watch it for a bit? And we sat down and I said, what do you think it's doing? And she said, I think it's hunting. And I said, wow, what do you think it's hunting for? And she said, rodents. And I said, well, let's watch. And sure enough, within like two minutes, this heron did the slow motion Zen bow and then snapped its beak into the ground and came up with a rodent. And then we watched it tip its beak up and you could watch this little rodent go right down the throat into the gullet of this bird. And Jade was completely blown away. And she was just going, wow. And we sat there for another 15 minutes and watched this heron deplete a field of rodents. And she was, you know, thrilled at this and we were walking up the hill and she was talking and talking about it we got back home whenever an hour later and first thing she did was go to a bird book and look it up and she came running up to me and she said daddy look that was a great blue heron and to this day she still remembers and talks about that event so the other way to handle it and the way that most of us would handle it and the way that I have handled it many times which is the wrong way is to just answer the question. If she says, what's that? You could go, well, it's a great blue heron. And you go, oh, okay, it's great. But then the learning is over. It's like she either remembers it or she doesn't, and chances are she won't. And you've missed that opportunity to ask questions, to dive deeper. So it turns out that one of the keys to being a mentor is to stop giving information and ask questions. The questions are far more powerful than answers that often when children ask us questions, they don't even really want to know the answer. They want to engage you in the process. And by just asking more questions and getting them to probe further and think it through further, they're far more likely to keep that sense of wonder high. Whereas if you just give an answer, well, that, now it's just a, a name, it's information, the wonder is effectively gone. So one of the things that I hear all the time from parents is, well, how can I take my kids outside into nature when I don't understand anything about it, you know, they're going to ask me stuff and I'm not going to know the answers. And I said, well, the, the dirty secret here is that you don't need to know any answers. In fact, it's better not to know the answers in some respect, because now you are co-discovering. You're a co-conspirator working with your child to figure things out. We need to give up this notion of being the expert all the time. And I argue that teachers need to not worry about this as much, too, that they, too, need to be co-conspirators in this effort. So if we just get used to asking questions, probing and, and being, you know, sleuths together with kids solving mysteries, that's what's going to keep their interest level up. And, and that really is at the, what the heart of mentoring is all about. And that resonates with me in the work that I've done with uh, consulting. And so it's not just children, uh, adults as well. I think 
if you just hand people, you know, ideas or solutions or innovations, which is something in biomimicry uh, that the biomimicry consultant tends to do, um, it ends up not really impacting, not really having an effect. But instead, if you engage uh, in a practice of going out into the nature, looking, finding some solutions for yourself, trying to be there and ask questions, then the solutions they come away with are ones that end up getting implemented in businesses and turned into companies and products and things that change the way that they think about the world. And so for me, I found it a very important distinction between teaching or being an expert. I cringe a little bit when people say that I'm an expert. And it's more its a more about exactly asking, asking questions is a much more powerful way of engaging in uh, even consulting and innovation work. Right. Right, exactly. Yeah, no, I think you've got it exactly right. So another one of these uh, topics that I've been really interested in that, that you touched on a little bit is cities and sort of this idea of deep impact or deep technology of nature and the difference between nature's technology and our technology. And I, I'm wondering if you could unravel that a little bit for me. I coined this phrase deep technology just to represent technology that literally was invented by the natural world, by, you know, 3.8 billion years of on-the-ground research, because everything in nature is built on everything else, that, you know, if you, you couldn't have had humans before you had primates, you couldn't have primates before you had early mammals, you couldn't have had mammals, et cetera, et cetera, all the way back down to, like, stars, literally. So, um... Nature has invented solutions to virtually all the problems that we can imagine. Nature has learned how to solve those problems in ways that don't involve high temperatures, lots of wasted energy, there's high efficiency, there's zero waste. So if you think about it from that perspective, why not tap into all of this deep technology, this deep time technology that nature's invented to learn from that and and what I, I one of the trends i love to see in biomimicry is that people are not just thinking about for example um, you know velcro or using the fins of humpback whales to think about designing um, uh, turbine fans which is all happening Rather, people are starting to look at things from more of a systems perspective. And I love this trend in biomimicry where they're saying, listen, nature solves things collaboratively. How do we make it so that there is no waste in the system, so that any wastes can be used as resources by another part of the system? And more importantly, how do we set up the system to evolve? That one of the keys to this word thriveability that I threw out earlier is that it involves a shift in perspective. That sustainability is all about minimizing bad stuff. You know, we're talking about, you know, zero waste, etc. It's about doing less bad. Thriveability is about doing more good. And in particular, it's about setting up the conditions for evolution to happen. Because we need to get away from this idea that the world is static. And, and virtually unchanging, which is kind of what sustainability tells us. And we're trying to move back to some previous time with sustainability. We're not going to go backwards. We have to co-create something that is about this high-tech, nature-rich world. 
what does that look like and, and how do we create conditions that will allow us to evolve in ways that we can't even anticipate? So it's a new mindset and I think biomimicry can be at the heart of that. Um, and this is the difference between sort of high tech, which is sort of human invention and about solving individual problems and deep tech, um, which is more about learning from the natural world, how the natural world does things over time and not just ecologically in the moment, but evolutionarily over long periods of time. So for example, just to make this a little more concrete, how could a city become an engine for biodiversity? I mean, right now we think about cities as the places where the wild things aren't, right? Like, like we push nature to the outside and in the middle of the city, you might have rats and a few birds and a few butterflies and some grass, but that's about it. Well, A, that's completely untrue. Just recently, 30 new species of insects were discovered in the middle of Los Angeles um, by some citizen science efforts. So nature's everywhere. But in addition to that, we can bring it back. And we can do that simply by adding native plants, which attract native birds, which attract, sorry, the native plants attract the native insects, which attract the native birds and other forms of wildlife. And our cities can become migrational flyways for birds and insects, etc. And you can start this just by rewilding your backyard or your schoolyard or your churchyard or whatever it might be. And if, we, if enough of us do this, cities can be transformed over a relatively brief period of time. And now they're giving back to the surrounding ecology, not just taking away from it. And that's the mindset that I think we need to, need to pull from, which relates to sort of this biomimicry deep technology approach. Speaking of high technology, the things that we're most excited about today often are the things that are bad for us. One of the things that I ask is, what is one of the most harmful things we are doing today, but we don't realize that it's harmful? <laughs> hmm. are you, so you're saying that, that you're, you're asking me what things that I realize might be harmful that most people don't <laughs> think are harmful? Is that what you're really asking me? That's what I'm really asking you. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that one of the most harmful things we do is we, once again, I, I will say that it comes down to how we teach people to think that we have a reductionist approach to solving problems that, you know, if we have right outside science world where I work in Vancouver, there is a body of water that's salt water. It's an inflow from the ocean. It's called False Creek and it's got effluents going in it and sewage in that. And we can say, all right, we want to do restoration ecology on this thing. We want to clean it up. We want to stop the effluents. We want to uh, coat the pilings of buildings and things that herring will lay their eggs on so the herring come back. Because if the herring come back, the fish will come back. And then you'll get sea lions and ultimately orcas and all these things. And that is great and that's good thinking in some ways, but it's still, um, it's still limited. You're still trying to solve single problems and you're trying to say that it's, it's just a technological struggle that we're trying to overcome. And I think part of this is getting people to shift to see that there's bigger and better solutions out there. So for example, when we think about the future right now, um, I did the same thing with my daughter a few years ago where I said, okay, Jade, you know, 
when you're really old, like your grandmother's age, say 75 or something, is the world going to be the same? Is it going to be better or is it going to be worse? And she looked at me and she said, Daddy, it's going to be worse. And I said, what? Who told you that? And she said, Daddy, everybody knows that. Like the planet's warming up and it's going to be worse for people and other species. It's going to be worse. And I said, oh, my God, like if she is like eight, nine years old and she thinks this, well, it turns out she's the norm. This is what most people think. And no wonder the media is full of post-apocalyptic scenarios, full of zombies and bombed out cities and stuff. We have yet to present a vision of the future that people want to move towards. And Martin Luther King taught us that no movement can be successful unless you present that vision that people feel they want to migrate towards. So I think that one of the things we're doing right now is allowing people to think that um, we're going to hell in a handbasket. And we're not countering that view with positive views. And by the way, those positive views will be different for every place because every place has its unique culture, its unique history, its unique biology, its unique geology. And it's, it's got its own story. And that story is unfinished for every place. So we need to co-create a story for every place that people want to move towards and then find ways to making that happen. So I would say one of the things that we're doing today is that education, thinking, everything is still atomized. It's still reductionist. We're still trying to solve these problems one at a time. We still teach math in one hour and then English in another hour and then science in another hour, etc. And these are completely false ways of looking at the world. They're simply human inventions. Everything out there is intertwined, and we should be showing how these things are intertwined and teaching people to think creatively, think critically, think adaptively. Um, and I would say that in the future, we're going to look back on this, I hope, and say, oh my gosh, how did we teach people for so long in this really destructive way that sent us down this into this deep, dark place? Can you tell a story of a place in that way that you were just talking about? that would give us a blueprint about how you might tackle that, just briefly? I moved to Vancouver um, to tackle that very problem uh, because I thought this would be a good place to do it. Vancouver, British Columbia, is currently working to be the greenest city in the world by 2020. Uh, they will not get there. There are some cities in Europe that are going to be greener in 2020 than Vancouver, but but they're really working on it and they're thinking about how to do big stuff, transportation, densification, waste removal, um, you know, local foods, all these things. There's a real movement towards it. And I'm excited about the energy in this city and in the province. Another thing that I really love here is that particularly Reese having recently come from the US where I've been for the most of the past 30 years, Every time I go and talk to people around town, it doesn't matter if they're politicians or corporate folks or work at other nonprofits or they work in higher education. People will say, what's your First Nations strategy? And when I first was asked this, I was kind of blown away. Like when I'm in the U.S., people aren't asking me about what's your Native American strategy. And, and in Canada, there's this consciousness that the fastest growing demographic in Canada 
are First Nations. They're indigenous peoples. And they are the poorest people and they're the largest underserved population. And if they're not doing well, then the country's not doing well. And so there's recognition and it really is coming from government as well. How are we going to address this issue? Another thing I love is in education, they are talking here about getting rid of standardized testing for the most part. Um, and really focusing on personalizing learning, on place-based learning, experiential, hands-on learning. And that's where I think education needs to go. And British Columbia is being really quite cutting edge in thinking about how to do that. They have a brand new curriculum. They really have, <coughs> excuse me, abandoned a lot of the um, standardized testing. So it doesn't drive education. It doesn't mean there's not a place for standardized testing, but it should not drive the curriculum. And then the biggest thing that we're working on that I think has tremendous potential and relates directly to the theme that you folks have in this, in your series here is um, creating learning ecosystems. So that when most people think about learning, they think about um, mechanical metaphors it's a machine that's got a bunch of cogs and they have to be greased and they all work together, etc. But the, the problem is that you can go all over Vancouver or any city in the developed world and you will find over a hundred organizations that in one way or another are pushing for awareness around the environment, around connection with nature, around building up the the community around STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. And all those organizations, including the one that I work with, are doing great things at the level of dozens, hundreds, maybe thousands, maybe even tens of thousands of kids, which is terrific. But we're barely moving the needle at the urban scale. We're leaving most people, particularly from underserved communities, behind. So this notion, which has come out of the U.S., is to create a learning ecosystem in which you leverage the assets of all these cross-sector partners to do things that none of you could ever hope to do on your own or in twos or threes. So that means that nonprofits are collaborating with the business world, with government, with higher education, with K through 12 learning, etc., to come up with approaches that integrate the assets of all of these different partners. And so we are going to launch a learning ecosystem for the province of British Columbia. And the idea here is, what if we could personalize education so kids could follow their passion, whatever their passion is. And we're going to focus to start on the STEM fields because it's, it's estimated that 80% of jobs in a generation will require literacy in STEM. And many of those jobs will actually be in science, tech, engineering, or math in some ways. And we're going to illuminate these pathways to jobs like being an engineer or being an artist for a design firm, um, working with the environment, um, being an entrepreneur, whatever that might be, and show kids what these pathways are. And if they're interested, allow them to have activities that they do in school, after school, summer camps, and as they get older, maybe internships and shadowing opportunities and scholarships, etc., just so that they can pursue these things, but create careers which are going to benefit or work towards this thriving future 
that we're talking about. So if we can come up with a vision of what that is and then create careers that will help get us there, and then we can take kids and allow them to pursue their passions to find the career that best matches their abilities and their passions, etc. Well, now we're really off to the races. And the challenge is to do this in a large urban area. And that's why I want to do this in Vancouver. And I'm not trying to argue that Vancouver is ahead of the rest of the world or anything like that. Um, But I think it's a place where these things could happen and, and be developed. Are the organizations that are signing up to create this ecosystem incentivized in any other way than just sort of sheer logic of um, that the ecosystem is more efficient in terms of resource use than any other system? Yeah, with collaborations like this, people aren't going to get in it just because of the higher purpose. You have to solve for all the egos and logos in the room, basically, for the organizations (laughs) themselves. And... So they need to see how they benefit as individuals, as organizations, etc. And one way of looking at this is that we're trying to, as much as possible, not compete with or against one another, but rather, so it's not about slicing up the pie in different ways. It's literally about attracting more funds to create a bigger pie. Um, so, for example, right now, the corporate world, there's a huge tech industry growing in Vancouver, and they invest relatively little in developing the talent pool, even though they know that the talent pool is the limiting factor in building a, a tech hub here in the city. So if we can create this ecosystem and go to government and go to the business world and say, listen, we're helping you, here's, uh, here's how you can help make this happen. I think that we can literally create a bigger pool of funds so these organizations can do more of what they already do, just do it at a higher scale. Talking about collective impact there, is there a, is there a website or, or a name to this learning e- ecosystem that you're creating? Um, the, the, the working name for it is Symbiosis. And um, there is no website yet. We're still at that collaborative phase where we're bringing people around the table and talking about it. And one of the things about collective impact is that you have to be careful not to get ahead of the partner organizations, that they need Mm -hmm. to be at the table when you're working this through. So we haven't decided for sure on what the name will be and um, how... You need to decide what the vision is, what the goals are, what the metrics for measuring success will be, what the um, uh, respective contribution of each of the organizations will be, and all of that takes time. I was involved in co-founding one of these efforts in Denver prior to coming to Vancouver, and it took two years of getting senior level staff members together every other week for a couple of hours to really nail it down. So there's a reason why collective impact hasn't become a dominant way of getting things done. It's hard. Um, and it, you have to find people that are willing to work together. And I believe it's the only way that we're really going to solve a lot of these big problems. We can't depend on government to solve them, and I don't think it's fair to. Um, we need to be working collaboratively with the different sectors of society to do this. Uh, a bit of a, a shift in topic, but I think in our household, one of the areas you're most famous for is as Dr. Scott on the dinosaur train. <laughs> Could you tell us just a little bit about that experience and, and how that, that shaped your perspective on what you're doing today? <laughs> well, first off, 
I really am a dinosaur paleontologist. I don't just play one on television. Um, <laughs> I was, you know, trained. I have a PhD in zoology and have traveled around the world digging up fossils in far off countries. Um, I've had the honor and joy of naming about 15 new dinosaurs with colleagues. Um, so it's been a great career. But I reached a point where I, I was a tenured professor at University of Utah in Salt Lake City, and I just reached a point where I thought, you know, there's all these other critical things that need doing in this generation that do not involve animals that have been dead for millions of years. And I personally just felt the need to step away and go do something else. So I did. I walked away from that job and moved with my wife and daughter to the coast of California and started consulting in various ways. And one day I got a phone call from an executive at the Jim Henson Company uh, in Hollywood who said, um, Dr. Sampson, um, and back then I was Dr. Sampson. Uh, I'm not, now I'm known as Dr. Scott from the show, but it was funny. I sort of went through this transition and she said, Dr. Sampson, we're going to create this dinosaur show for PBS. Would you consider coming on as a consultant? And, and uh, I said, well, that sounds really interesting. What's it called? And she said, well, we're going to call it Dinosaur Train. And I said, you can't call it that. And she said, why not? And I said, because I'm a paleontologist. And I spent a bunch of my time trying to convince people that humans and dinosaurs didn't live together. You can't go sticking them both on trains it's like the Flintstones or something. <laughs> and she said, no, 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 no. Don't worry. We're only going to put dinosaurs on the train. And I stopped and I thought, oh, my God, that's brilliant. That's like chocolate and peanut butter if you're five years old, right? And so I thought, this sounds pretty cool. So we got into conversation, but I, um, I had a big concern, which we all wor worked through, and that was I do have this passion for connecting kids with nature and for getting them to turn off screens so that they can experience the natural world. So... The last thing I wanted to do was be part of creating yet another vehicle to addict kids to screens and separate them from nature. So I said, you, you got to let me at least have a tagline to encourage kids to go outside. And my wife, Tony, came up with the line that I ultimately use now at the end of every episode, which is get outside, get into nature and make your own discoveries. Uh, I'll be honest, I had no clue if a television show could encourage kids to turn off the television and go outside. I mean, yes, that's where their eyeballs are, but could you actually use it as a tool to get them outside? That was untried. Now, we, we aired in 2009, so eight years later, I can say it has been a roaring success. I have heard from literally hundreds of parents who tell me that their kids ask to go outside because of the show. You know, little Johnny's out there digging holes in the backyard looking for fossils. You know the parents love me for that. And uh, <laughs> little Jenny's out there in the backyard looking for birds, which, as all little kids know, actually are living dinosaurs. Um, so dinosaurs are not extinct. In fact, there's more varieties of dinosaurs around today than there are mammals. We just call them birds. And so... Kids are doing this, and, and it was so successful after the first season of Dinosaur Train that we injected the theme of nature connection into the show so that the, the 
cartoon dinosaurs um, on the show have a nature club and they show behaviors that we want the kids at home to have about observing the world around them and taking notes and making collections, having nature tables, etc. And then we put it on the website and we started encouraging kids to go out in nature and everything. And that was so successful that PBS has now launched a series of shows that include nature connection. So Dinosaur Train has been a real adventure for me and I had no clue at the time that it would grow to be what it is today where it airs daily in like over a hundred countries. So I get email from all over the world from kids and parents who tell me about how they love dinosaurs and how they want to be paleontologists and all of this kind of stuff. So um, as much as I want to make a difference in the world and I work to do that every day, there's probably few things that I will ever do that have the impact of Dinosaur Train. And yes, my kids, when they have chicken for dinner, have dinosaur for dinner. So There you go. They love that. (laughs) And there you go. It answers this age-old question that's been plaguing paleontologists for years. You know, what did uh, dinosaurs taste like? They tasted like chicken. (laughs) Is there media, a book, a movie, documentaries that right now has you energized or that you think is inspiring in some unique way? Hmm, that's a great question. I think I've seen a number of documentaries recently that I find powerful. Uh, A close friend of mine is Kirk Johnson, and he's director of the Natural History Museum, uh, Smithsonian in D.C., and he did a series on um, the making of North America, which was used geology as the root of telling stories about how the continent came to be. And uh, I thought it was extremely well done um, and really provocative. I think um, one that is um, less inspiring, but no less powerful is the race. I think it was called the race to extinction. uh, That was talking about what's happening in the natural world, raising awareness. The, The challenge is that and it's the environmentalist challenge. It's arguably the greatest failing of environmentalism over the past generation. And I put myself in in this echo chamber as well, is that we have believed that if we just tell people that we're going to hell in a handbasket, that we're really, things really are getting dire. And we showed them the facts that they would change their behaviors. And it hasn't happened. And any marketing specialist could have told us this 30 years ago, that if you want to change behavior, you don't give people a bunch of facts. Car commercials don't list all the data associated with horsepower and everything in a new car. They show beautiful people driving through pristine landscapes, right, to try and get our emotions. And so we st- this is where we need to have these positive um, Uh, visions of where we're going. And what I don't see enough of in the media is what I was talking about earlier, these these visions of a a planet we want to move towards. Um, There's a lot of negativity out there still. And so there's always exceptions to that. And there are people who write that, I mean, Thomas Berry is one of my heroes. Um, And he is a fellow, uh, he called himself, he's a theologian in some respects, but he called himself a geologian. And he made the argument that we need a new story right now, that the story we have about the world is preventing us from moving towards a thriving future. And that we need a story that 
incorporates what we know to be true about the universe that first there were stars and then planets and then chemistry and then life and then multicellular life and etc cetera, etc cetera. and we're all part of this unfinished story and we we need to embed ourselves in there that in some ways we are the only large culture and i sort of say that in very general terms that sort of the western world there has multiple cultures but we're the only culture that is um predominantly secular and therefore lacking in a story about where we come from we live in this little snapshot called the present and we don't really have any sense of where we've been or where we're going and and this is a challenge and i think we need to have things like that so there have been um uh there's a a wonderful documentary series um which is about the story of the universe by brian swim and mary evelyn tucker who are friends and colleagues of mine and and that was a documentary that's been out now for a few years won some awards um but i think i would love to see more media out there in all forms you know um, blogging books um film television that really gives us a sense of all the great things that are going on and how we're moving towards this this amazing future because I think we could do that. I think if people got a different mindset, they could get really excited about where we're going and give up this post-apocalyptic view. Just more positive vision creating that thriving world. Yep, and more place-based stuff. I love mm-hmm. it when I when I see documentaries and films that tell stories of place that have real people and real details and and you go, "Okay, I understand that place better." And if it's your own native place, that's that's the best of all. So now you you basically give people new eyes with which to see the world, and they go outside and they do that. And and you know the indigenous peoples literally do have different eyes that they see the world with than most of us in Western culture, and and we need to learn from that wisdom. There's one question that we ask, which is a little bit odd, but. Um... I've asked it so far from everybody, but if you were able to splice in one gene or characteristic from any organism that currently exists or has existed on Earth into people, what would it be and why? Well, I, I'm going to sort of think this through as I talk about it a little bit. You've you, you've already been able to tell that my biases is about shifting mental mm-hmm. frames and worldviews. Um, and I'd love to think about how we could do that. And I'm just wondering if, like, for example, I mean, I love whales. And and being able to understand what a whale experiences in a marine environment as it swims there, um, if we could give humans a glimpse of that, I think we'd be able to to understand the whale much better and see it not just as an object but a subject that's worthy of our respect and our care Um, and i just don't know if there's a because a lot of that is based on the experience of the whale but um but there is obviously a ton of genetics involved in for example how that whale senses its environment so um uh, I don't like so if I were going to pull a, a gene that would allow a human to you know see 
better underwater, which a whale does, or hear things that a whale does, or things like that. Um, but I don't. If there's, if I had to pick one offhand, so I'm. You're talking about splicing this gene into a human to change the human experience. Is that right? Is this what I'm understanding? So I've asked this for several for several reasons. I like what you've said already, um, and and it echoes I think what other people have talked about in terms of building empathy for the natural world. Yep. And how important that is. Yep. And then and also you know this idea of like a an avatar in the, the in the movie the avatar the the Navi people have that almost USB connection that they can plug in yes. to any animal or oh. or thing, which is amazing. Which would be so cool. But then I've also asked this very sort of um, tactically in some fields because we can now insert genes into people. Yeah, which is And scary. so it is. And and nobody's really talking about it. And so I ask it in, in a way of, of thinking about like trying to have that conversation in maybe a playful way. But, but, but also, you know, uh, getting us to think about what are the possibilities, what are the dangers, what are the... That, that now we do have the ability to insert genes into organisms. And maybe we have a conversation about that, but, you know, in this sort of deep technology future, we're getting to the point where we're not only like learning from life, but we're actually, our technology is becoming life Yep. and vice versa. And so that's a scary, very powerful place to be. And, and asking questions about that in a, in a meaningful way, but also in a playful, fun way. Yeah, it's a wonderful question. I'm certainly not a question that I've been asked before, and um, and I don't have. I'd have to give it some thought to really come up with what I believe um, would be a good gene to to put in there. But I'm in complete agreement with you that our technology has far outpaced our wisdom, and we're not asking the questions around whether or not we should do it, even if we have the ability to do it. And one of the tragedies of technology is that we typically don't hold back, right? If we can, we do it. And then we just deal with the consequences. Um, and sometimes those consequences can be dire. So you think about nanotechnology and artificial intelligence and the ability to um, genetically modify and, and tailor make babies um, and what this could do within a single generation, uh, even potentially, is absolutely stunning. Like humanity could be transformed in ways that we can barely imagine. And this is right on our doorstep. So um, these are these are great questions to be asking. I applaud you, Tim. Yeah, I think I think we need more vision around what that future looks like. I mean, very much echoing what you're saying. We need to, to imagine what that means for us. So, yes. Uh, but if you could teleport anywhere for one hour and then back, where might you go? <laughs> Am I allowed to go through time as well? Uh, yeah, for sure. Okay. <laughs> um, I'd go back 75 million years to Western North America, um, probably on the um, – the, back then, sea, there were no polar ice caps. Sea levels were higher. And many of the continents were flooded as a result. And there was a shallow sea that went all the way from the Arctic Ocean to the Gulf of Mexico and effectively split North America into an East America and a West America. And we know more about dinosaurs from that West America landmass, which has been called Laramidia, than we do anywhere else on the planet. 
um, for this window in the late Cretaceous towards the end of the end of the Mesozoic era, the age of dinosaurs. And this is a, a time that I have spent more of my career studying than any other. And um, we know a fair bit about it, and we know next to nothing. And in one hour, if I could walk around there, I mean, I could spend an hour and not see a single dinosaur, which would be tragic. But, um, uh, uh, but, but it would be amazing to go back there and just see how they interact, how that ecosystem works, what it feels like to be there. And I'm sure it would blow away many of the preconceptions that we have about the world. So that's where I would go. Oh, I love that. Cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very hoping we can have that technology soon so we can do <laughs> okay, that for you. Okay, thank you. You let me know <laughs> if you come up with that. I will. I will. Well, is there, is there any place where people can find out more about you online or um, any place you'd like to direct the audience? Sure. I mean, um, I have a website, scottsamson.net. Um, I, I do a lot of public speaking around North America and beyond, um, and I, I'll post events on my website and things like that. Um, I think I would love for more people um, to read How to Raise a Wild Child. I think it's one of the uh, pressing issues, one of the most pressing and overlooked issues of our time that you know, you go ask a bunch of scientists, what are the things that are threatening us the most? And you will hear about climate change and species extinctions and habitat destruction. And I would agree with all of that. And I would say we can't solve those issues unless people care about the natural world. Um, and so this disconnect, this alienation that kids are experiencing um, that separates them from nature is really something that we need to spend a lot of time and energy on. And any of us can do it because we all have these little humans called children in our lives somewhere and um, we can go and help connect them with nature. So if I could direct folks anywhere, it would be to that um, so that they can start becoming nature mentors to the children in their lives. Thank you. And I would echo that having <clears throat> just finished the book, I now also want the audiobook because I think it's the stories in it are, are really useful in that context. Uh, it's rich with resources that I wasn't aware of. Um, so I think if, even though I'm in the field more or less in different ways. Um, so thank you for that. I think it's a wonderful resource for parents. It's great. Thank Not you. Not a problem. And Tim and Amelia, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me today. I, I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. Same here, Scott. This has been a tr like very inspiring, and I hope that um, you know lots of people find your work and find ways to interact with you after listening to this. Cheers. Thank you. Okay, now as a sort of a professional thing, um, I never have a good sign-out. I was wondering if, if you would do a quick sign-out for us on the podcast this time. All right, well, remember, get outside, get into nature, and make your own discoveries. Thank you so much, Scott. You got it. <laughs> and that's a wrap with Scott Samson. You can find Life Centered on iTunes, and if you like what you heard, please take a moment to give it a thumbs up, review, or comment. It does help us out a lot. A quick announcement you might be interested in, Taryn Mead from episode 2 of this podcast will be co-facilitating a workshop with me this summer in Gloucester, Massachusetts from June 4th to the 8th. There are still a few seats left for anyone interested in spending four days hiking, kayaking, and using the wilds as a classroom to explore biomimicry and resilience with Taryn and I as mentors. I'll put a link in the show notes and you can learn more and register at biomimicrync.org. 
And remember, get outside, get into nature, and make your own discoveries.